Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there, whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, January 23rd, 2023, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebick with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Hero, and although I might not have any idea what Skittles is talking about when they say taste the rainbow, I sure know what it's like to go and try and catch a rainbow. A rainbow trout, that is. That's the fish we're talking about this week. Have you tasted a rainbow guy? Yeah, I, I yeah. must have at some point. I, I'm yeah. trying to think about so if I've specifically had. That. I've yeah. eaten brook trout. I've eaten brown trout. Probably what? eaten cutthroat trout. I assume at some point I've eaten a rainbow trout, though. Yeah. Especially if you that. count steelhead. I mean, they serve those at restaurants. Yeah. So, yeah, we're talking about rainbow trout. This is a really gorgeous fish. They have basically this beautiful pink stripe that runs down along their sides. It's also on their cheek. And they're covered with these many, many black spots or dark spots. It kind of looks like freckles. And the freckles go all over their face, along their back, and onto their tail. I wanted to jump into size really quick. I mean, a normal kind of average size trout, I think, is probably, what, guy? Maybe 20 inches or so, maybe a little less, maybe a little more. (laughs) You see, you're out in Alaska where that's the average. That's not what <laughs> it's Alaska, like in yeah. other parts of the world. You go up to Alaska, you go out to Kamchatka, and you're going to have these fish that can approach 30 inches and where it's like, oh yeah, an 18-inch fish. That's an average fish. <laughs> 18 inches is a good-sized fish in most other parts of the country. Yeah. I'm thinking, you know, a solid fish is like, you know, 12 inches and 8 inches is more typical. Okay, <laughs> At least that's okay. my experience. I was looking up the all-time world record and it was caught in Saskatchewan, and it just looks like a pig. When these fish get large, they just get really fat. They look almost obese. And uh, yeah, it was an all-tackle world record. It was 48 pounds, and it was it just looks like a fat beast. Yeah. So they're pretty cool to look at. But if you look at pictures of rainbow trout online, yeah, you'll see a ton of variation with kind of the colors and even the shape. Some of them look more like a football some of them are a little more stretched out. We've talked about steelhead before, and those guys look a little bit different. They'll go to the ocean. So this is kind of the sea run form of the rainbow trout. And when they go to the ocean, they get this really kind of steely silver color like Pacific salmon do when they go to sea. And they're a little bit more long and skinny. I think what they call it pencil fish on that previous episode with Mark Hieronymus that we did. We covered steelhead back in season one. I don't recall. Pencil fish. Pencil Hmm. fish, because they're, yeah, long and skinny. So different shapes and sizes, but definitely that kind of coloration and those spots are um, pretty typical. And the spots are not necessarily always there. Again, the the Alaska coastal form has spots above the lateral line, below the lateral line, on all the fins all over. It's a very heavily spotted subspecies of this fish. And most rainbows are going to have some spots usually uh, a lot of times I'll see them restricted just on the upper half. I've caught some with essentially no spots, like maybe a few right on like the caudal peduncle and that's it. And that's a freshwater, a freshwater variety. Yeah. Because I know that. Yeah. Yep. I mean, usually rainbow, you know, you do have the steelhead form like you're talking about, but for the most part, when I think people think about rainbow trout, it is this freshwater freshwater resident resident. form. That's the most common. That's the one that's been spread all over the world. You know, you look at maps of where this fish has been introduced. It's one of the most introduced fishes of all time. Uh, You know, you can find these things over in Sudan. 
Over <laughs> in the Middle East, they got places. Uh, South America, Costa Rica. You go up into the mountains of Costa Rica, you can catch rainbow trout now. It's wild. They're on every continent but Antarctica. I bet you we could get them there. <laughs> Set up a little uh, thermal unit in there and keep, keep them alive. I mean, if we wanted to, if we had the money, <laughs> we could put rainbow trout on Antarctica. Not yeah, that but we're even, trying to yeah, do that. Even within the U.S., I mean, they've been spread outside their range. But yeah, Australia, New Zealand, and these guys do well. They're pretty opportunistic. I don't think there's a state in the U.S. that doesn't have rainbow trout. Because, you know, it was back in the early days of fisheries. We talked about the fish trains before, you know, people would take these East Coast fishes. And every time they'd cross some water, they'd put them in and they'd see what stuck. And that was going from East to West. But you don't want to send a train back empty. So you put in rainbow trout and things like that, and you bring them from the West out East. And, you know, trout are just one of those that they're a good sport fish because they get fairly large. They're a predatory species. They're going to hit lots of stuff. And, you know, people just, they're attracted to a fish that's kind of easy to catch and that can taste good. And so naturally they just proliferate and got spread all over the world. Hatcheries set up specifically to stock rainbow trout in all parts of the country, probably what Fish and Wildlife Service kind of did in their early days. And, you know, it, it, it's what happened. You know, yep. kind of these days, you know, that might not be the thing that we're trying to do, but people still love their rainbow trout. Yep. Yeah, there's a lot of other fish in those areas that they stock the rainbow trout. And like you mentioned, they're pretty opportunistic. So they tend to outcompete um, in terms of, yeah, eating fish or prey that those other fish might de be dependent on. So they can, they can be problematic as well. Here's a cool study I heard about once. This study took place over in Japan where they have a native char. It may have been a Dolly Varden or a close relative and rainbow trout have been introduced over there as well. What they found was they had one treatment area where they introduced rainbow trout on top of the char. And they had another treatment area where they basically just kept the bugs from <laughs> coming into the stream. They put up these giant structures and they found that the presence of the rainbow trout had the same effect as keeping out all the bugs because the rainbow trout would feed on stuff on the surface and this other char would go from feeding on stuff to the surface to eating stuff on the bottom. So it's kind of interesting that it had that effect. That's just a fun study that I read okay, one time. That's kind of cool. So there's some cool subspecies of the rainbow trout too. I mean, we're talking... Ankerinchus micus, and there are some neat color. Formerly Salmo gardnieri. There you go. Yeah, I figured you'd bring up the name change. But Guy, are you familiar with some of the subspecies in terms of what they look like? I mean, we mentioned kind of what a typical rainbow looks like, but like palomino trout or golden trout or some of those other ones we've talked about kind of on the side. Well, we, we, we've already covered what the kind of Alaska coastal slash, I, I think that's the same subspecies as the Russian. I could be wrong. Maybe they're just closely related. But those kind of farther northern latitude type rainbows. Then you get into kind of the smaller red band rainbows, which those yeah. occur in different places from the Columbia River Basin down into the Great Basin. You have some. One of the most famous is the California golden trout, also known as the Kern River golden trout. Not to be confused with the Palomino golden trout, which is different, or the Mexican golden trout, which is a completely different species. Yep. So the Mexican golden trout, that's Oncorhynchus chrysogaster. But the California golden trout, that's Oncorhynchus micus, the rainbow subspecies Agua Bonita. 
<laughs> and those are only found in these really tiny rivulets up in the high Sierras. I had the fortune of when I was going out to my sister's graduation last summer, I took a way out of the way route to go up and try and catch these. I was able to get some. They mature at like six inches. Yeah, they, they don't get much bigger than that in their native habitat, that is. You know, the, these small fish, fishing for them, it, it's really technical stuff because like i say they don't get too too big they retain their par marks even you know the the adults retain yeah. these marks that are usually restricted to just juvenile fish but it's very similar to kind of your like high appalachian brook trout fishes so like when i was trying to catch those you know it took me forever to find a stream that had them i finally found one it's called jackass creek oh, nice. and but if you were standing up, you could not catch the fish because I saw you there. So you had to crawl on your belly through the grass and kind of be up on your knees and just kind of just, <laughs> I was casting drives for them. And so like you could just barely see the fly, but then they're so small. So when you set the hook, I'm using like a three weight. When you set the hook, you just yank that fish and send it flying. And I felt so bad, but uh, it, it took some work to get these fish. They were a really fun one. People, when they found these, I think it was probably like early miners and stuff that kind of came across them first. And then they just started moving those around to their favorite fishing holes because they want to catch this really pretty fish. And famously, you know, these got moved out to some of these mountain lakes in the Wind River Range in Wyoming. That's a popular mm -hmm. spot where people go to catch them. They do get bigger out there than they do in these tiny little streams. But they, they do kind of lose some of their brilliant color when they're in those lake systems and as they get bigger. But you can still definitely tell that there are different subspecies than your kind of common rainbow trout. And one other subspecies, this is one that I tried to catch on that same California trip, but failed. It's the Eagle Lake subspecies of rainbow. You get really alkaline water come up into this lake and it's just produced its own subspecies. It's been on its own evolutionary trajectory for a while, but it's the only place in the world you can catch it. It was a beautiful trip, but I wish I had a boat. Uh, I couldn't quite get them from shore. Was... And then the Palomino golden trout. What's up with that one? The Palomino. Now, that's an interesting story. So the Palomino, this is a lot of times when people say that they've caught a golden trout and you see them, they're almost always pellet pigs, you know, that are raised up on private waters for big fish for the people coming in wanting to pay money to go and catch them. But they all came from one individual female fish that was found in a West Virginia hatchery in, I've seen dates very early 50s. And so they've just started, you know, they're like, okay, we got this cool mutation. It basically kind of makes it not albino completely, because, you know, the eyes still have color and stuff, but just a pale-looking fish, kind of ghostly, but you still got that prominent red stripe going down at, like, Katrina Disgust. And so these fish were kind of, they started just breeding it with regular rainbow trout males. This was a female. Initially, the juveniles, when they were coming up, they looked like, okay, well, this gene didn't take... We're not gonna have, but slowly some of the fish started to turn this golden color, and once they got to the a larger size, they they became golden. So then from there, West Virginia started stocking them out there. They'll call them the West Virginia Centennial Golden Trout, because ah. I think it's around the West Virginia Centennial that that came up, and other states wanted in on this, and so Pennsylvania took it. You can find them all across the continent now, or places that have stocked this thing. But it's not really a subspecies; it's just a genetic variant, all derived from one mutated individual in West Virginia back in the fifties. Nice. 
So, I mean, we've talked about some of the subspecies now. We've talked about the ocean variety, the steelhead that goes to sea to get big. One thing that I think is really interesting about steelhead is, you know, you might assume that there's a gene out there like, okay, this fish has the steelhead gene. It's part of this population that's going to go out. But that's not the case. There isn't a single determining factor that says, oh, these fish are going to become steelhead or they're just going to become river resident rainbows. And they're finding more and more, okay, it's like these epigenetic factors, these gene expression type things related to their growth and their metabolism and, you know, smultification and stuff. I love that word, smultification. And their adventurous spirit. That and, you know, a mix of that and like environmental factors. So you can have fish uh, from like the same clutch of eggs, the same brood, and some of them will become steelheads and yep. some of them won't. And so to clarify, they're all Oncorhynchus micus. It's all that species. Micus. So rainbow trout genus species. Yeah. And we talked about how rainbow trout are so widely distributed and doing so well. And steelhead, I mean, they there are populations that are not doing well at all. Well, that raises actually a really interesting point because you do have these threatened and endangered populations or, or runs of steelhead. The river resident populations are often doing just fine. And the steelhead life history can come from these river resident fish and vice versa. Is it possibly something... It, in the environment, in the streams, is causing a smaller proportion of the fish to out-migrate to the ocean than normally would? Or is it ocean conditions that are causing increased mortality out there and fewer fish to return? There's still a lot of questions there that remain unanswered. And I guess either way, whatever it is, it is important to conserve that diversity within a species and within a population. I mean, that kind of lets things be resilient through time. So yeah, it's 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 neat that they have that variation within those populations where some go to sea and some don't. And I think a lot of times, I mean, if you think about kind of the migratory nature of those sea run steelhead, that's just something we cover a lot on the show is you've got these barriers to migration and whether it's culverts or diversions or dams or whatnot. And it's just important to be thinking about how that impacts fish. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of where these guys are located and some other relatives, I mean, they're in the the salmon family and some other Ankarenka species include the five Pacific salmon species that we have here in Alaska and on the West Coast. I think some folks are going to, you know, maybe be thinking of another common trout. We've got the brown trout. Those guys are related to Atlantic salmon, salmo. So that was something we were hoping to just make clear on this episode is where these fish fall and kind of what their close relatives are. Absolutely. And back as recently as the late 80s, the accepted scientific name of the rainbow trout was Salmo guarnieri. Salmo is the genus, like Katrina just mentioned, of the brown trout of the Atlantic salmon of these fish in this other basin. And this is around the time that we were getting good genetics work finally done. And it was kind of realized like, oh, these fish in the Pacific basin, yeah. you know, it's kind of like an oh, duh moment for us now looking back. And I was like, yeah, the fish in the Pacific basin are all related to one another and not the rainbow and the cutthroat and all these guys and the Pacific salmon aren't as closely related to the, the Atlantic ones. But, uh, you know, at the time, you know, changing the name because Oncorhynchus had priority, Oncorhynchus micus, which Oncorhynchus means hook nose from the big kipes that the, the, males, the males will get, get when they, they get ready to spawn and get big. And micus comes from the Russian common name uh, out on Kamchatka for the species. That's like Mykesia. <laughs> 
So there was a big controversy both within the scientific community and the public community of changing the name from Salmo Gardnieri to Oncorhynchus mycus. People were very upset about it because it's such a popular fish. They always are, and yep. So we, we might be gearing up, heads up, we might be gearing up for another one of these big changes with uh, with largemouth bass in the next couple of years, but people were furious. Yeah, I, I, it's kind of petty and silly, but... I had a really cool story that I had heard from Togiak National Wildlife Refuge, which is here in Alaska. And this is related to kind of rainbow trout and their eating habits. But they were doing some kind of study out there. And one of the rainbows they caught that they couldn't end up releasing. It had like 20 shrews inside of its stomach. And what they think happened is this like family or group of shrews was traveling around the river Maybe the bank fell in and the rainbow trout just happened to be in the right spot at the right time and just chowed all of these shrews. So they had cut it open and I actually have a picture of it. It's online and it just, it's like, yeah, all these shrews. So if if you're an angler and you're thinking about this fish, yeah, I mean, try a shrew pattern or a mouse pattern for a fly. I mean, a lot of times you think of tying a fly and matching the hatch, but these guys will hit stuff like a shrew or a mouse at the surface of the water. I just thought that was a really kind of fun thing about this fish to see how voracious they get. And I actually, I know some fish can actually make their their stomachs kind of expand during the summer. And especially here in Alaska, I mean, these fish are trying to bulk up before winter. They're going to be less active in the winter. So that's just, it's something that they're going to really take advantage of, like bulking up and eating whatever they can find that's appropriate for them. More food means more babies if it's spawning season, faster growth less predators if it's not so more food the better and you know you bring that up you know new zealand is one of the like premier rainbow trout fishers. again this is how far this fish is spread but i know a lot of people go down there and yeah they'll strip mouse patterns because they'll eat those regularly for both rainbows and brown trout so mm-hmm. absolutely no you're right on with that with some of those fish you mentioned you'd been catching earlier some of the smaller ones what were you using pattern wise we fly fishing or how are you fishing them i mean it's usually not hard to catch them, yep. especially if these fish are coming from the hatchery. And that, that's one thing to note, you know, when you're out there, it's actually pretty easy, I find, to tell if a fish was reared in a hatchery or is a wild fish. You can look at the colors. Hatchery fish tend to have just real silver sides to them. Real, I mean, you still see that uh, a faint pink stripe, but it's not going to be the, as good, brilliant colors. You're not going to have like a green back on it like you do on wild fish. And then you also look at the the fins. Yep, they're worn down and funky looking. Yeah, because these guys are being reared in these concrete raceways. raceways with, you know, tens of thousands of their, you know, kin and just rubbing up and they, their dorsal and pectoral fins just get a braid. So if you catch these fins, fish with stumpy fins, yep, you know, you... Yeah, it's probably from a hatchery. Don't, don't freak out. There's probably not chemicals in the water causing mutations to look at something like that. It's probably just, you know, a hatchery dumpling stocked fish. But Did you just say dumpling stocked? Yeah, I know some people call them dumplings because they're dumped oh, okay. in the water. Because <laughs> It's funny, you know, how, how do these fish get where they are? You either drive them out of a hatchery truck, drop them in. Some places, like I know on the Chattahoochee River, which below Lake Lanier has a, uh, it's actually got a wild reproducing brown trout fishery. Brown trout have better thermal tolerance in warmer uh, temperatures than rainbow trout do, Uh, but they still stock rainbows in there because you have this hypolimnetic release coming out of Lake Lanier, and they just going from the hatchery down to the river, they got this really long tube that you can see that they drop them in. And then in places like Utah, 
they stock them from airplanes. You know, these fish, they reach their terminal velocity. And, you know, I'm sure it doesn't feel good. I wonder what percentage of them die hitting the water out of airplanes. Well, not all of them, obviously, because yeah. there's yeah. it's efficient enough for them to do that. Because, you know, they used to backpack them in on horses. But, you know, cool it's job. just more efficient to fly a plane over and then you pull it open and just all the fish drop from the sky. <laughs> so lots huh. of ways of getting these fish to, to new places. Yeah. But, you know, talking about how I catch them, you know, if it's a stocked fish. Get a pellet. Throw some pellets in. No. Throw a pellet. People do. <laughs> they they tie fly. pellet flies. Yeah. Oh, just oh, dang. flies are like little. They look like hatchery brown pellets and those will catch good fish. People use live bait. Well, I say like like worms. Uh, yeah. Probably a minnow wouldn't be great for a smaller type fish. Not shrews, but uh, yeah, not shrews. Yeah, don't 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 do any mammal live baits, people. Uh, <laughs> but you know, worms, power bait, that stuff works well. Good. You know, throw out a rooster tail or a panther martin or any kind of these inline spinners. I really like those. Fly fishing. If you got a good hatch going off, any matching that hatch will work well i love mm-hmm. nymphing for these guys uh nymphing you know you're mimicking the uh juvenile the, the larval stages of these bugs that will be landing on the water later on and i think trout do the the vast majority of their feeding underwater so if you want an efficient way uh, of catching trout i think nymphing is usually uh the best way to go and really getting that stuff down on the bottom it's cool how they'll key into those hatches I don't know if folks have seen some of those like a mayfly hatch or some of those big bug hatch events, but the the fish will just key in on that and just be feeding on one size, a fly, one thing that's really specific. And that's so cool. It's like a whole craft in itself, tying stuff. Oh, yeah. I know some people that take their tying gear out by the water and, you know, they'll just, you know, right one option is you catch the bug and you match it best to where you have in the box. Some people tie something to look as like that thing as possible because you know, it, it depends on where you're fishing. If you get back where there's like hardly any pressure, these fish are going to eat anything that looks slightly buggy. If you're fishing mm-hmm. in places that have tons of pressure, you know, the old saying is not only can the fish tell you what kind of fly that is, he can tell you who tied it. Uh, <laughs> you, you could think that this fly has to fool the fish, but if it isn't the like perfect that. size, if it's two sizes too big, those fish will turn their nose up at it because they know exactly what they're looking for. So mm-hmm. it, it depends on how much pressure these fish are facing. Yeah, I haven't fished for trout since uh, leaving Michigan a number of years ago. I used to fly fish there, but since coming to Alaska, yeah, I haven't really fished rainbows much at all. I mean, we're mostly going after food fish. The big 20-inch or 30-inchers I was talking about, those beautiful fish in Togiak and kind of other areas of the state. I haven't really gone after those. I hear they get real big on the Kenai, but I never caught any out there. They do. I think there's a big winter kind of popular fishing contingent on the Kenai for them. But they're beautiful there. Speaking of eating rainbow trout, I actually, going back to your first question of the show, I remember eating a rainbow trout that came from a kid's fishing day, you know, we we're throwing some power bait and you have a few mortalities and me and the other guy out there, when we went home, we'd cooked them up and ate them. So that is an example. And you, you've done a lot of kids fishing days out in Alaska, right? You, you remember that one picture with that kid that I had where we're yeah. holding the pink salmon? Yeah. And you had your little like junior ranger badge on. Yeah. Or the, yeah German. German. He caught all the fish. So pretty much like all the good pictures we have of Kids holding fish are mostly German and a couple other kids. And German, if you're listening, I haven't seen you in a couple of years, so come out fishing with us this summer. He was a cool dude. He he was quite a fisherman. <laughs> he came out for three years with us, I think. And man, he got good. He got good at fishing. 
rainbow trout are one of those fish that again they're they're heavily stocked so oftentimes they're the fish that people have their first either fish interaction if it's not a sunfish or a bass or something but at least usually their first trout interaction is with a rainbow trout and you know people love to go and there's some interesting you know management practices and stuff that go on with this are you familiar with delayed harvest management practices at all you tell me about it it was something that I didn't know of before I came from Utah. Out in Utah, you know, you got native trout throughout much of the northern part of the state, and you can fish for them year-round. When I moved out east, like, the, the opening of trout season is, I guess, a big thing because people want to go out and catch their trout, and they've been heavily stocked by the agencies. And I saw that in North Carolina this past year, actually. I got to, like, experience it for the first time, just seeing all these people out catching these trout. It's like, huh. Hmm. That's a really interesting phenomenon because I'm not used to it. And so so one of the interesting things when I came down to Georgia, what they had is these things called delayed harvest. And so some of these rivers in the wintertime, they're going to be cool enough to support a, a good catch and release fishery for trout. The, the, the trout are going to survive. There's enough oxygen in the water for them and everything. But when it gets to the summertime, you know, some trout might be able to survive, but with handling practices and everything, it's not great for them. So what they do is in the winter they say okay catch and release only basically saying we're going to target this one particular group of anglers who are essentially fly fishermen recreational fishermen and saying you guys get the winter time when the trout can be successfully caught and released over and over again and they get to come in and then around i think either april or may when the waters start getting too warm they flip it and say okay you can use whatever you want come chuck your corn take the fish out. They're going to die anyways. Mm. And so they open it up to that other sort of segment of the population who have different, you know, goals with fishing. Cause you know, fi- uh, not all fishermen are the same. You have the very adventurous types that try and go after, you know, these subspecies up in the really high Sierras that are really tough to get to. You got others who are just looking to get out and hang out with family, may catch some food, cook it up for dinner. You got others who are really interested in just like you know, the precision of fly fishing and, you know, it's all about that kind of stuff. So it's kind of like a Tai Chi type thing that you're doing out there. (laughs) So there's, but, but rainbow trout are at the center that they have the capacity just because of every place that they've been put and all the ways that people interact with them to be at the center of all these different activities that people do fishing for. So I I think that's kind of cool. That's pretty cool. That's very cool. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's neat. They can really reach a lot of a lot of different people, can enjoy them and stuff like that. I guess I would uh, kind of on the flip side, just encourage folks to think about all the other kind of diversity of native fish out there. So I think rainbow trout have been introduced in a lot of places where, you know, like I mentioned, they outcompete some of these other fish. So a- as you're fishing and as you're getting more into some of the details that we cover on the show. Just be thinking about where you're fishing, what's native there, and yeah, remember some of those fish as well while you're out there. Cool. <laughs> yeah. We'll get out there and enjoy the rainbow trout and all the other fish. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebick, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montequin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. Fish.